Um, I've, I was asked to share um, what God has taught me about being poor in spirit. And one of the things that made me realize is um, poor in spirit is a miracle of God. Because we cannot bring on our own to this point. And poor in spirit is not um, a work or a output that you do. But it is a position that he brings you into. And so when, when Jesus came into the world early on, um, what he did was he took the commandments and then made them what they are truly about. You know, not that something that's external, but something that's internal. Not just something that's a work of man, but actually they are words of God that is spoken and goes directly to your heart. He made the commandments more than just the commandments, more than just doing. It's, it's about being repentant and achieving genuine transformation. Because until that time, even now, the love of God has been reduced to the simple things of just doing things. And those things you could do without repentance. And without, therefore, you don't have transformation. You could people be so busy doing stuff, but um, they stay the same. And, and that is my truth, my, my story, you know, coming to the, the end of myself and coming to realize um, who I truly am in, in him, um, before him and after him. And so truth has always to be, has to always to come with humility, you know, and, and, and it is the closely, the constant encounter with truth that keeps us on our knees, keeps us humble. Um, one of the the things, the most people with the things that God has shown me is that this position of being poor in spirit is not a one-off thing. It is something that you live with every day of your life for all eternity. And so often we find ourselves a one-off thing and then we go up and then just do all the things that we want to do. But God knows that. He knows the weakness of our hearts and the weakness of our soul. And he constantly brings us back to that place. And so I find myself standing early on, kneeling on my feet, standing up. Go to my, but he comes on bringing me back, bringing me back, until to a point that you realize that this is where I have to stay. And this is where I'll have to be constantly forever. Um, and it is that realization, you know, when you come to know the truth of who you are that you're actually brought on your knees and you stay the same, you stay in this, this position. And, and, and the Japanese have a term for this. This is not just kneeling. It's called zeiza, which means um, proper sitting. And in this, this particular position itself ex- expresses a lot of things. You know, it expresses humility, first and foremost. It expresses you know, repentance. When you, you know, you, you've done something wrong and you... But you, you have repentance. It expresses devotion, and it also expresses courtesy as well. And so this is this is the position that we have to be in whenever we come to meet our Creator. You know, like what Paul said this morning: the little G, the God with the little G, has to meet the God with the big G. And in that encounter, the little G has to bow down. And he has to humble himself and stay in this position. And so this is the position that God has taught me to be in. Regardless of what I do, this is the position that I have to feed from. You know, 
You cannot receive revelation standing up. It has to be always in this position. You cannot serve standing up. It has to be in this position. You cannot give standing up. You have to be in this position. You cannot work standing up. And so even if I'll be standing up, even though you are, you know, you, you, you are speaking to people or speaking alone by yourself, your internal disposition would always have to be in that place. The first place, the first time you met him. The first time you encountered God. And don't ever forget that God will always put that, you know, you have, there is a set up, a memorial, he says, to the people of Israel. Because you know where you have come from. And that is important. Because you cannot go to where you're going without knowing where you're coming from. And that coming from is important because it keeps you grounded. And so... This is the position of the cross. This is the position of being humble before him. And in, in this position, it's a position of shame. And yet at the same time, in God's eyes, it is a position of glory. Because it is through this humbling of yourself that you actually find life. You're the death of yourself, you find life. And that was, you know, for me, um, what it was about. I didn't have a road to Damascus experience like Paul, or like, you know, like Greg. There are people who had that. But for me, it was more like a, a slow unfolding of God knowing him. Um, I came to know the Lord and experienced that position, um, maybe as a, as a young 12-year-old, hearing the word of God, getting convicted of what I don't deserve, you know, what I deserve, you know, and, 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 and looking up and see instead of punishment, instead of condemnation, see the eyes of love. You know, you could just imagine that the woman that was um, accused of adultery, and she, could, she knew deep inside that she has done something wrong, and she knew deep inside that death was facing her. And she was just waiting for the stone to come and hit her, the first stone to come from the, the one who deserves to throw the first stone. And then everything went quiet, and she looked up, and saw instead the eyes of love. You know, the eyes that was not condemning, but the eyes that looked through her to love. And that is enough to break the self. You know, that is enough to bring the self down. But it was that. That's the mustard seed that I caught on. But being naive and innocent and don't know, you know, it, ha- it takes time. Like with these people, it takes time for the truth to unfurl and unfold. And it's still unfolding now. I, I-, I still, you know, see it grow. And so, you know... Remember what um, there was a post that Greg said, you know, the different kinds of Christianity, the give me one, the use me one, the break me one, the build me one. I find, looking back now, that I've been going through these stages. You know, as a young Christian, you have to go to the, the give me phase, and you know, God is with me, you know, Lord, I want this, I ask, ask it of the Lord, and he gives me. And so in that process, even though my heart was not really him, it was me. But although I thought that it was him because he was blessing me and so I'm okay. And so you, you discover more of yourself in, in that process. You know, you, you know that you, what you can do, you excel, you give your best to things, you, 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 you develop. And, and you thought that it was good. It was all good. Until he again brings you to that place. And then you realize, and, and you realize just how good he is. And you reach to a point when you said, Lord, you're so good to me. And all this time, I've just been asking about myself. Let me now see your heart. And what, what is it that you want? It's not just about me. But then you got to the use me phase. Now that because you know that what you can do, 
you you assume you get out of that post and then assume that this is what God wants and you start doing the stuff that you can and can do but then God has to bring you back to that place and then you realize it is not he is not interested in what you can do he is interested in what you cannot do and then that in that place of humility you said lord it's no longer about my term you know i don't want to do things according to my term it has to be your term and when it comes to that point and then then you start the journey of of actually making becoming realized that you need him to serve him <laughs> you need him to love him you need him to know him it you cannot do that on your strength um the other thing is you will always be poor in spirit um because you know before the process you give yourself to all the, all these things because you you know that in this world this is what is needed you know we want the comfortable life we want you know to to excel in what we do to know more but in jeremiah 9 23 to 24 if you have the bible you can go and read it this is what the lord says he said let not the thousands the lord let not the wise men boast of his wisdom let not the mighty men boast of his might Let not the rich man boast of his riches. Let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. So the one thing that Mary found was this, the devotion to Christ, to know him. You know? And why is it not? Because these things, wisdom of man, um, power influence um riches they can all be a function of man and man's effort it doesn't need you don't need other example because you know that if you if a man would put his mind and heart to the pursuit of riches he will become the richest man on earth he puts his mind to study and get oh, he, he can get a number a number of pages he can he can do that he can if he puts his his effort to marketing himself then he or influencing people he can become the president of the united states but when it comes to knowing the lord knowing the lord is cannot be a function of man's effort it's only a function of love because knowing the lord requires god making himself available so it doesn't depend on your own effort it can never depend on your effort And if you think about God, how infinite wise and how great he is, um it would take us forever and ever and ever to know him. And so the knowledge of God that you have now compared to that the amount of oh, the fullness of God that he is, I think you cannot boast that you know him. You will forever be poor even if you have stayed a million years in heaven. knowing god compared to the fullness of him will always be poor you will never go beyond that god understands that but it is in his heart that you know him that is why he made his spirit available without limits but it depends on that state you have to be in that state and so it it makes sense you know why moses who is who has um the prince who who educated in in the best university at that time in the 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 the, the best civilization would would go to god and said lord i want to know you show me your ways that i may know show me your ways that i may know you paul who 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 had a very extensive resume said i have i count all things as loss for the sake of knowing christ 
you know, what Jesus was saying. You know, it is not, you know, this is eternal life that they may know him. And so there are two, I think, from my own experience, two profound truths that man has to come into. One truth is to know that he is not the center of the universe. It's the truth that we have all to accept, that we are not. Despite the skills that we have, the, the strength of character that we have, we are not the center of the universe. And that encounter with God brings us to that point, that humility and that turning, that, you know, that, that simple devotion to Christ. The other truth is that you are the center of his universe. Um, and they come together in that singular position, you know. You cannot have one or the other. Because to have, to know that you are the center of God's universe without the sweetness of repentance brings you to the wrong uh, end of the stick. To know that you are not the center of universe without the love of God and you know, the grace of God also brings you to the other side. It has to be both. And that's the only way, um, I think, um, that Jesus demonstrated for all of us. So every Christian has a beginning, every Christian has an end. It is a realization and a revelation. It is of repentance and grace. It is of turning and fixating on what is, what is true. It is of receiving and of becoming. You stay in this place forever and you walk in this manner forever. Thank you everyone. Awesome. All right, so I'd just like to invite the panel up now. If um, you guys want to jump up, that'd be great. Some profound thoughts and pr profound truth for us to, uh, to, to unpack and um, wrestle with. All right. Oh, well, welcome again, everyone. Um, and so we're keen just to transition from what we've heard from Noel about this poverty of spirit and particularly what Noel was sharing at the end about the life of Moses. Um, um, but before we get into it, um, I'd like to just introduce, we've got Joe here, we've got Steph, who's making her debut on the panel. <laughs> Round of applause. Obviously, I'm Sam and this is Chris. <laughs> Not that there's anyone here that we don't know, <laughs> but you know. Um, so yeah, we're going to be looking at the life of Moses tonight. And I think of any person in, um, in the scriptures, I think Moses um, highlights what poverty of spirit looks like, particularly in the Old Testament anyway. Um, and you know, um, the, the scriptures say that Moses was a man educated under all the learning um, of Egypt or under all the learning of the world. And he was a man of power in word and in deed. And yet, for all of his strength and his intellect and his ability, there was still a process that he needed to go through. Um, like we heard this morning, he was like the most beautiful grape <laughs> you could ever have, the plumpest, ripest, tastiest, finest specimen of a human being, you could say. And yet Moses himself wasn't exempt to this process that we've heard 
described from Paul and from Chris tonight. Um, Moses, this man who was powerful in word and in deed, still needed to go through this process of, um, of humility and becoming poor in spirit before he could be used by God um, and be a demonstration of what God was wanting to see achieved here on this earth. And so Moses went from being a man full of natural capability and he went through this process of humility and becoming poor in spirit to the point where he was broken and then built to be a man of divine capacity. Um, And so we're going to be looking at that transformation process this evening through the life of Moses. Um, And I feel that there'll be some really key points here for us to um, um, to draw on, and I think we'll really highlight what this poor in spirit position looks like. Is that cool? All right, so if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 7. That's where we're going to be based this evening, Acts chapter 7. Starting at verse 17. I think we'll split the reading up tonight. Um, The reason why Steph's on this panel is probably because of her reading voice. Um, no, it's totally not. It's totally not the case. It's just a. It's just an added perk and added bonus. <laughs> um, so, Chris, are you able to take from seventeen uh, down to uh, thirty-four? And Steph, are you able to take from thirty-five down to uh, forty? If that's cool. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds." Now when he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Um, I have indeed seen the oppression. I'm being Sam. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you the ruler and judge? He was sent to be the ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. 
He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the desert. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. All right. Powerful little story, eh? Um, And we know that this is actually in in Acts 7 here is an account from Stephen just before he is is stoned to death and utters the same words that Christ does. Um, And Stephen is is giving the summary of the life of this man, Moses, um, who, like we said, grew up under such incredible education and yet um, went through this process. we, We see here that um, that one day he goes out and he sees the affliction of the Israelite people and he takes matters into his own hands and kills um, the Egyptian that's beating up one of the, the Israelites. Um, and from there he flees and, and comes into the wilderness where we see God starting to move and to work and to shape and mould him um, into a, um, a, an ambassador of another heavenly kingdom. And so um, we've got a few questions to work through this evening, um, uh, you know, drawing on the life of Moses. So the question number one is, uh, Moses, so we've got here, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. How did this learning originally have him living? How did this learning originally have him living? Um. Naturally, I, when I when I hear that question, I think, you know, like you said, he was a man mighty in word and deed, and so he had obviously done really well for himself. And in the modern day, you might say that he went to the best university and was, you know, a, quite a um, an eligible bachelor or something along those lines. <laughs> right, had all the right family connections and all of that kind of thing. But the bit that really stands out to me about how this had him living was how it was that he decided he was going to live for God. So he had enough knowledge to know that deliverance was going to come through him for his people. And so what did he do? He took everything that was his own strength and applied that into how he thought God needed to work. So it wasn't a, a humble position at all. It was a, and, and it's quite interesting to me because I look at it and I go, he actually had an indication of what his destiny was. He was aware of it, you know, and we can be like that. We know what it is that God's spoken into our future. Let's say he might go, look, I'm calling you this, or I have this in store for you. You know, we've all received prophetic words. And unless there's that that breaking there, we're liable to pick it up and make it happen for ourselves. I mean, Abraham's almost another example of that, you know. This isn't quite working out like it should. I'm going to make it happen. Um, and, and Paul, I guess, is another example of that where... He has a real knowledge of God in his head and therefore goes about to persecute the very thing that God's building because of what it is that he knows because he's been built by man. And when the knowledge of God turns up, game changer. And I think there's something so deeply humbling about that, you know, that here's a man who thought that he was doing God a favour or was, you know, like engaged in God's work. And I just think of like, for example, my brother who's not a Christian, if I was to go to him and say, hey, you're, you know, you're really not doing God's work, you're really not living from this being poor in spirit. It's like, well, 
whatever, I don't care about that anyway. But here's a man who does care about doing God's work, you know, and same with, with Abraham, you know, here's a man who had a promise given to him and was doing absolutely everything he possibly could in his own efforts to be able to make that promise happen, you know, and I think that, that so often that's what that leads to this place of, of real humility and breaking where you realise that your absolute best effort to live for God comes totally and completely short of the standard that God is looking for because he's looking not for us to perform for him, he's looking for this humble heart where he can actually take us from where we once were and to build us with an eternal um, source of life, Christ himself on the inside of us, giving us the ability to live how we never could live without him. Hey? You know? And to me, it's a good example of what we often say around here about where did you get your knowledge of God from? So there's that sense here that we haven't heard until the wilderness God actually speak to Moses, yeah. but you get that sense that he would have known he was rescued and that he had some special call. He obviously knew who his real people were. Yeah. But it would be pretty surprising if he had heard any of that from God because I think if he had, that would have been written down in here. Mm-hmm. So again, to me, that's that thing about he hadn't actually heard from God. He didn't know God at all until then. Or he had a knowledge of, yes. uh, about God yeah. but hadn't actually come to this place of intimate knowledge, eh? you yeah. know? Because it reminds me of the scripture. It says that that um, you know knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. You know, and he had, he had a form of knowledge, but not true knowledge. You know, because his life demonstrated arrogance and the ability to to see and act. You know, whereas you know God was is is looking to to take us from being people who see naturally and live for what we see to people who see the heavenly promise and are motivated by that. Eh? You know? so. The other um, thing that builds into that, I think, is the... Um, so what Moses does, he does in secret. So he's trying to work out this call, but it says in the Exodus version that he basically looked around to see if anyone was looking, and when he saw they weren't, he killed this guy, and then he tried to hide him. And when it gets uncovered what's happened, and Pharaoh's going to confront him, he runs away. So again, although he, um, he has a sense or a form of knowledge of the call on his life, he actually can't stand in it yet. I, I got the word like self-righteousness when I thought about kind of where he was operating from and just that like when you look at yourself and you see the qualifications and you see the family lineage and you see the relationship he has with Pharaoh and you see all of these worldly things that set him up to be the right guy in the right place and to do God's will and he looks at himself and then and yet he knows he's not under authority that's why he does it secretly it's because he's like oh I'm just gonna this is a go because I'm in the right dude in the right place but oh no okay I'm not under authority and it all goes wrong for him and I just kind of get this kind of sense that God totally set him up as well, a little bit like we hear with Peter being set up, taking yeah. his sword to the garden. You know, Moses is set up to for things to come out and things to be revealed. Um, you know, he hides a dude under the sand and somehow he's seen and he's found out. And it's it's not an accident. And it's funny, I feel like that messes with our brains a little bit, that God would allow Moses to actually murder someone, you know? like, And, and it's not like God orchestrates that, but he, he allows that to unfold based on 
just life itself, you know, um, just like with David, I think he didn't, I don't believe he orchestrated the situation with Bathsheba that we talked about last week, but he allowed life to just take its course and was so totally faithful, even in the midst of Moses's failure and David's failure and Abraham's failure and almost every person that you see that that is used powerfully by God is caught up in just themselves, you know, and needs to be set free from that way of living into a new um, new life, a new way, which we're going to see later on, hey? Any other thoughts on that? So the question, question number two is, why did Moses then need to be led into the wilderness for 40 years? What was the purpose of that wilderness? What, what did God see? Um, the, the, what was his intention for leading Moses out to spend this time for 40 years um, on the backside of the desert? Well, the, um, the, the classic answer that you hear is that uh, he led Moses out of Egypt, but he needed to get Egypt out of Moses. You know, and so there is definitely some process there. I love... Um, I love what Ian McCormick said one time when he was here. He was talking about what it looks like to be a leader in Christ in the body. And he said, unless you walk with a limp, you can't be trusted because you have to have gone through a process of breaking. And he talks about, he was talking about Jacob wrestling with the angel. And at the end of it, Jacob's touched in his strength and he walks with a limp ever after. And for me, I see Moses who had basically gone through all of this process and time was part of that process to become someone that same process was acted out to become no one. <laughs> That's basically the way that I see it when he was, he was let out. And we see, we see the type and shadow of Moses. He's like a, an example of Christ who was led into the wilderness as well. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, one of the things that we see in Christ is that Christ was... Um, he went through the same things as his brethren did. So he was empathetic with them. He, he walked the same walk. He was um, uh, tempted as we were tempted, but never stumbled, you know. And I, I just go, here's Moses as an example. He's the, a forerunner as well, where he goes into the wilderness. He has this process where he's, he's set free and broken in order to be rebuilt and then goes back to Egypt completely free and is calling his people into what it is that he's just been through. So he's not void of this process. He didn't just go, hey, God's going to lead us into the wilderness and we're going to do this thing. He, he's already been through this process. And Greg says it, you know, um, you can't lead people where you haven't been yourself. And so that's what it is. He gets taken out, taken through a process, and now all of a sudden... He's not the man anymore. <laughs> and I love that uh, he's, a, he's a, a typology or he's a forerunner of what that process looks like for us, hey, you know. And I think there's, you know, being in the wilderness for 40 years, it's, it's really easy to, to read a scripture and 40 years is just like a number, you know. But 40 years is the best part of someone's life, you know. Like, for, like and 
Moses wouldn't have been a baby when this happened, so he's going to be at least past his prime, you know. And, uh, and you know, like natural wisdom would say, if you want a strong leader, you know, make sure that it's in their prime. It's not even Jesus, not even in Jesus's prime ministry years in his early thirties. You know, like this is like, well, this is well further on than that. And yet, in God's mind, it's actually not a waste to allow someone to have 40 years in the wilderness outside of um, what you would expect someone who's so capable to be involved in, eh? You know, this man should be involved in, in governance and in, you know, like Chris is saying, I don't know, running a university or doing something high-flying, and yet in God's mind, it's not a waste at all for 40 years. Um, and I know for myself, anyway, I had a time when, when I was at university and that was something that God had really um, placed on my heart at the time was to actually let that go for a time and to come and spend time with Him. And the single biggest comment I had from people was, what a waste, you know? What a waste of your, what, what you're so capable, why are you wasting your life working at a cafe, you know? Um, and I think, there's something about that that it's so offensive to natural reasoning, you know, um, and yet in God's mind, there's something more valuable than just someone's natural capability. Eh? He's, and it's not that that's not important, it's just that there's a number one and a number two going on here, you know, that God actually used Moses's ability. And I think he chose Moses because he was capable, just like Paul and Peter and these apostles were really capable men. And yet it wasn't their capability that qualified them like we heard from Noel. It was their brokenness, you know. And it's actually that process of brokenness meant that God could finally be at work through someone's ability and gifting and calling and, and all of that sort of thing, you know. So and I think in God's mind it wasn't a waste at all um, taking him through through that process. I think something that was established in that 40 year time um, and to tie into that waste that idea of waste is like he names his firstborn son this name that means I'm a foreigner and it just really stood out to me because like in that time he's disconnected from his family he's disconnected from his culture he's disconnected from relationship he's disconnected from the foods he used to eat he's disconnected from his day to day living and his way of being and he's just out in a world and in a culture and a situation he's got no reference point for and he gets this revelation of foreignness I am foreign I do not belong here there's nothing in this world that I recognise as consistent and coherent with me and yet that's like so needed for where he's going both in the physical and then in the eternal and that that revelation of foreignness because it comes up every time I, I every like in Acts and back again and um whatever that book was and um yeah Exodus and <laughs> but that that I feel like that foreignness is that is the poverty of spirit. That is his, like, there is nothing for me here. And unless God goes with me, I have nothing. Unless there is something established in the eternal, then I am nothing. And that nothing in us is, and I love what you said, Sam, about qualification, because I get the sense that this 40 years is absolutely what qualified him to lead 
that gnarly group of Israelites for 40 years in the desert who were just, excuse my language, but they were a bit of a bunch of mongrels really, (laughs) who were really disobedient and really tough and really complaining and really whiny. And if he hadn't had that experience of, of just being disconnected and so connected with the Father, he wouldn't have coped with that. And so what's established in that 40 years is what allows him to survive and thrive and go in the next 40 years. And he's remembered in Hebrews, eh? And, and you know, like the writer of Hebrews testifies, and Luke and I were talking about this earlier in the week, you know, it says that he, he chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a time, you know? And, and I think that's fantastic, you know, in terms of here's a man who was so set apart from the world, you know? And, and we are to be, like, foreigners. We're to be strangers and aliens here on earth, eh? And from that place, actually able to effectively minister to people on the earth because... We're not held by a day, you know. It says of Jesus that he didn't entrust himself to any man because he knew what was in man, you know. And yet that didn't make him check out. It actually gave him the the ability and the capacity to minister, not needing anything back from someone, but to be able to freely give. Hey, you know. Feels to me like there are there are two things that happen with Moses. So one is the thing we've talked about here, which is he needed to be disconnected from what he had. But the second is then he had to have an encounter with God that reconnected him. Um, One of the things the Lord was saying to me today in particular is, remember there's no power in the wilderness. So the wilderness itself doesn't contain the power of God. It's just a place that disorientates us, basically. And so it can look like this, but it can... It's any place where the Lord is unhooking us from all of our navigation systems. Often, Moses' ones were provided by God. Being raised in Pharaoh's house saved his life. It wasn't like somewhere he'd got by accident, but he had to be disconnected from that so that he was effectively positioned for the work of the Lord. So if you think about the burning bush, so it was because he was there, because he was 40 years disconnected and disoriented that he, when the burning bush came, he turned aside. And that's the second part, right? Now that you're empty... Here's how I see the the thing you were trying to outwork in yourself. And I just get the sense it's really important that we don't think about this poverty of spirit thing as a system. Mm. It is a process, but it's not a system. It's a process of relationship. Mm. It's not a systemic thing we do outside of relationship. There is no poverty without relationship with him. Mm. Yeah, uh, it's massive. Eh? And I think because... Like the poverty of spirit, really, it's it's him in us, hey, you know. Um, it's not something um, that we achieve per se. It's something that it's who he is inside of us. Him taking full possession of us, hey, you know. So you could be in the wilderness forever, and some of them were, and never achieve poverty of spirit because it's not an external an external place. No matter how horrific it is, can't take you there. Yeah. Only the power of God can take you there. And so for Moses, he needed a wilderness. For David, needed a Bathsheba. But for many of us, it, sometimes we just need a child, you know, or, <laughs> or, or a wife or being part of a church community or a workplace. Do you know what I mean? That, like I think God uses any environment to have this work 
done within us, you know, because I, I just so agree um, with you, Joe. You know, it's, it, it never is the environment itself. I've, otherwise, it just becomes one of the multitude of man-made attempts to get closer to God, you know. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, when I... I know personally in my life when I dropped out of university and I had a real time of uh, every day I had at least two hours plus to be in prayer and reading the Bible and yet that was right for a time but then it felt like all of a sudden what was right dried up and it was it went from being right to actually this is not in him now you know and it makes me think of um, Elijah you know and, and God speaks to Elijah and he says I'm going to hide you away and the he, firstly, he proclaims drought and famine across the entire land. So there's no food and no water. But God says, hey, um, come away with me. And he brings him by this, this little stream and gives him water. And ravens literally descend on him and give him food to eat. You know, like this is a miracle of miracles. And then all of a sudden, the time for that divine provision we wore out, you know, and the, it's, it said the scriptures say that the brook dried up, and what was a source of, of provision all of a sudden was empty and barren. And God says, I've got something else for you. Now go see that woman who's on her deathbed with her son, and they're just about to put together some flour and oil and, put, and, and whip up their last meal that they can eat, and then they're about to die because they've, they've been in famine. And God uses a widow to be that source of physical sustenance and provision that he had needed. But imagine if the prophet Elijah wasn't poor in spirit, knowing that his source of life wasn't the brook or wasn't the, the ravens coming from heaven, but it was God himself, you know? And he was able to be ministered to in this place and then so easily to transition to going and asking a woman on her deathbed for her last meal, now that to me is poverty of spirit and a man who knows that his source of life and her source of life is not the wilderness or the earthly provision, it's God himself, eh? you know? And so I think Moses once again went through this process of being broken of what he thought his source of life was and being connected to the true source of life, eh? So. I was just um, thinking about how you can also imagine that at 40 years of age, you know, Moses, is, he's got this mission from God or what he thinks is this mission from God and he's going to outwork it. And you can just imagine for the next 40 years, he's still just working about how it's still going to work out. You know, he's like, okay. And as the second lot of 40 years rolls around, he reaches the end of it and he's like, I'm 80 now. <laughs> like, I'm done. You know, and, and I just kind of see it like that's the point that God's waiting for, you know, where you reach the end of yourself. Um, and, and, and just like what you're talking about, Joe, you know, just being out of sorts or out of what's familiar. Um, you know, I remember uh, when we went to Cambodia, there was, it was quite a, an interesting environment because there were so many things that we were different in terms of the landscape, in terms of what was familiar. You're out of sorts, and all of a sudden you're kind of vulnerable, and all of a sudden God starts speaking because you haven't got your comforts, you haven't got your landmarks. And... I feel like one of the dangers is that we can become comfortable or familiar in what it is that we even know of God. Even as spiritual believers, we go, well, this is my landmark, or this is my thing, or this is how God speaks. And then these circumstances that he allows to turn up, like you were saying, Sam, a Bathsheba or a, or a wilderness, where all of a sudden you're actually pushed beyond even what your capacity is in him. 
And that for me is the trick where you're pushed beyond your current capacity in Him. And um, I think, Noel, you shared this verse tonight, you'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Where you, you ask because actually you're desperate now. <laughs> you know, you haven't got what's comfortable or familiar and so you're fully engaged in your only option. You're no longer an option. And, and that, to me, is the second part of that wilderness process. And when you're in the wilderness, you're forced to eat something that you wouldn't normally eat. Yeah. You know, And I think of John the Baptist out in the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey. You know, mm-hmm. And I feel there's such a typology in there and that you know, God is taking us from an earthly food source to a heavenly one, you know. I remember being in Cambodia and we stopped on the side of the road um, at one of these little stores and Varna jumps out of the car and he gets, sees like you, these bugs, you don't even know what they are, they're so black, you know. <laughs> it's like crickets and he's like, do you, do you like some, you know. <laughs> and um, just gets a little bag of them and just knocks them back, you know. <laughs> and there's something so, like, in that moment, there's something so humbling about it makes you think oh this thing is going to go from being outside of me to inside of me you know and it's 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 like oh actually what comes into my mouth is going to actually do something on the inside of me and I don't know what it's going to do you know the way that it's going to taste what effect it's going to have within me you know and I think to me, this is the, the word of God, Christ, isn't just to remain outside of us. Yeah. He's, he's, we're to eat his flesh and drink his blood, you know? And so in the wilderness, you're all of a sudden forced to eat of a, of, and, and require something else for your source of life that you hadn't known before, yeah, you know? And it takes a step of, of trust to be able to actually to go there and to receive. And to find that the very thing that you are freaked out about is the very source of life that God has divinely given mana falling from heaven to, to nurture you and sustain you spiritually, hey, you know. And so I don't think that there's any accident that God, um, you know, rained down mana from heaven for the people to, to eat, hey, you know. So. And what I love about that Deuteronomy story and when he talks about what he did for the people of Israel in the wilderness really struck me again today, everything that happened there, he did. So I humbled you, I caused you to hunger and thirst, I fed you so that you would know. So it's we can again, you know, and and some of my old mindsets think, because it's like this, I have to do something, but it's what's God doing, you know. I can't, Noel's point, being poor in spirit is a miracle. We can't do it. And there's, that is, that's such a paradox, eh? You know, this, this place of absolute, total dependence on God and that we are, that what God is wanting to do in us is so outside of our capacity that there's not one finger or that we can do ourselves to support or aid that. And yet, on the other hand, the Israelites that Moses was responsible for leading out of the wilderness and into the promised land failed to enter because they, the Hebrews says that they had unbelief. And so here's something, it's absolutely not about us. And then on the flip side, it's absolutely totally about us and how we respond to what it is that God's doing, you know? And we need to find that, that middle ground, you know, because knowing that God does everything is not a place of apathy. 
um, it's it's actually a place of fullness. You know, it's a place of this place of poverty of spirit is not a place of lack, like we heard about the other week. It's a place of fullness. You know, and so, like we said, it's 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 about being taken out from and into. You know, um, it, it's about learning that actually it's nothing that we can do. But actually, it requires our submission to Him and 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 choosing to believe that God is faithful to perform on His promise in such a way that we aren't like the, that we don't die in the wilderness like the Israelites did. That we don't grumble about the food that's being delivered to us, but never actually putting it in our mouths and eating it and being changed by the thing that is that it's being delivered. Hey. So there's such a there's a, yeah. such a place to find in God where we're not apathetic, um, but we are not um, so elite in our human ability that we can do without God. You know, it's and 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 both of those are two sides of one coin, um, and ultimately we need to find that that position of oneness and in, in Him. Eh? Reminds me of um, one Peter five, which is again about people who are going through a hard time. And he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. So to me, that speaks of the, um, there is a positioning, like we can't do the inner work, but we can position ourselves. And to me, that humble yourselves is exactly that, that we have to be positioned under the mighty hand of God if we want to allow that work to happen. And it's absolutely reflected in Matthew when you think about blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And those those two things require each other. Like you cannot have the kingdom without the poverty, and having the poverty naturally brings the kingdom. If it's poverty before Him, because yep. poverty is so active, it's 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 a vacuum of there is nothing. There is nothing here. But when something turns up in the vacuum, it gets sucked in. You know, like, yeah. and I just. I kind of hear God's heart is so keen for people who long for him. And that's poverty of spirit. That's the vacuum is the longing for God. I can't do it without you, God. And so there is a kingdom and we operate from the fullness of the kingdom. And that's why people like Moses are incredible because he is so humble. And yet he operates from this incredible authority because it's never been about him. And yet and yet he knows his part in it as well, which is kind of like amazing to me. There's this um, passage in Hosea where um, the prophet speaking, the title of the chapter is God's Unfaithful People. And God's speaking to Israel one of the many times. Um, and it talks about, um, I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, these are my wages that my lovers have given me. And, you know, he's talking about how Israel has been unfaithful to him. And he says this, therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her, or I will speak to her heart and give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer my master. And it just speaks of this beautiful picture where God has to, separate Israel from all the things that are causing her to be led astray, bring her into the wilderness or a place of barrenness before him so that he can speak tenderly to her heart in the hope that she'll hear it, you know, and there's every opportunity that she won't. But his intention is that for getting all of these things forsaken and and coming away, that all of a sudden she'll recognise who he is 
Cool. Before we move on to the next question, do we have do we have any questions? Anything that's come up from um, the the discussion so far on topic questions that people want to ask? So just for the sake of the recording, um, so Lauren is saying a lot of the time that the natural ability that God places on someone is used later in their life. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, totally. I think we see that in Moses. Hey? We see that in Paul, um, where Paul was an incredibly capable person, you know. Um, but you know, he, he then says that his entire natural capability and his knowledge of the scriptures and everything that he had was like dung compared to the true genuine revealed knowledge of Christ and so he comes to this position of everything that I have in it on myself is nothing and then God like reshapes him and puts him back flips him up the right way and it actually works in this man who um, then all of a sudden, what it was that God had placed on him, his, um, his um, how would you say, his capability or his, um, his gifting, all of us was in the right order, you know. It was no longer running the wrong way anymore, you know. So, good question. Any other questions? Um, I guess my question is, what I'm hearing a lot is that um, in our society we've got a real funny relationship with age and as we age, it's the prelude before we die basically. And if we don't use our gifting when we're in our prime, we've missed out on something. What is society's relationship with age and why are we so obsessed with using our gifts at a at a particular time, whereas you've already stated that God actually does things a little bit upside down. Why is why are we as, as a society so obsessed with I don't even know what I'm trying to say. I think I know what I'm trying to say, but anyway. Um uh, I guess if I can, if I'm hearing what you're asking right, it, it feels to me like there's uh, obviously there's two kingdoms, right? There's the world which values youth and um, operating in your own strength, and there's God's kingdom, and He just doesn't see it that way at all. You know, I feel like um, you look on TV and they're advertising soft drinks or whatever it is. They're always young people at the beach having a great time and they're also all very good looking as well because that's pretty valuable. Um, but, but in Proverbs it says, um, the grey hair when it is found in the way of righteousness is a crown of glory. And so God is, he is over a completely different kingdom. And you look at Moses, and, and I believe that, like I was saying before, he could have come to the end of this 80 years and gone, I'm done, because he was thinking the way of the world. And yet it says that up until the time that God took him and he was 120 years old, he hadn't lost the strength of arm or the sight of his eyes. And so he wasn't diminished in any of his physical capabilities up until the point of his death because of the supernatural power 
of God on him. And so, yeah, I just I guess if what you're saying is that that there's a push to be used while we're young, I feel like that it's easy to buy into that because that's what the world's selling. But God doesn't see it like that at all. In fact, He says that um, that if we trust in the the strength of man, then we're not blessed at all. And that's what this is all about, really, isn't it? <laughs> Trusting in Him. I think to me that to, to me the issue is that in what we're saying here is that it really isn't about age at all, you know, and the fact that Moses's ministry didn't start till he was, you know, well well on in years is it, it really isn't. It's not saying that you have to wait till you're old yeah. to be used by God, or that you know you hear a scripture about a you know ground grey head is a crown of glory. Well, Chris is already disqualified, oh, you know. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> but basically, I'm saying like I'm just being I'm just being stupid. But ultimately, it's like it's not about how old you are, but it's also not about how young you are. It's about it's about your it's about revelation, you know, and I think that there's old men who are used powerfully in the scriptures in the uh, you know in the Bible, but there's also young men, you know, and there were young men who walked with such integrity, like Daniel and Jeremiah, you know, and Jeremiah, when God comes to him, he's like, man, can I really be this mouthpiece to the nation, being so young, you know, and so really, it's like to, to me, the, the ultimately, it's not about any natural physical, earthly um, quality that qualifies you, it's about him in you, you know? And so whether you're old or young, it's saying, actually, all of that's irrelevant. You know, you, there were kings who were six or eight years old in the Old Testament, you know? Now, I, I don't think that God would just place someone on a throne and just put them out there and, like, I, for the sake of it, I, uh, in my personal opinion, is that here's people who have been divinely placed there by God, who are um, empowered and have wisdom and are able to lead, you know. And so, God is capable of being able to move in someone and when they're young and move in someone when they're old. Yeah, it's for other, for all of us. It's it's are we in a are we in a place where we're in this process that that's being described here? You know, that we're under God's hand, we're being shaped and molded and by Him to be not just used by Him, but to know Him in, in this way. You know, um, and in knowing Him, to me, it's like that the value of knowing Him is so much more than needing your ministry to be expanded or needing to achieve things for God. That God is happy to wait for that to happen. You know. Um, so. yeah, and Christ is our ultimate example of that, eh? Like, you know, it says that he was unremarkable in lots of ways. Yeah. And he wasn't very old when he started ministering at the temple. So, again, it's, um, he wasn't qualified in the way the religious system were looking for. Yep. And I, I guess um, with that as well, I think you touched on the same is that really the outworking of whatever it is that God has for us is kind of a second place position anyway. Yeah. You know, so it's, it, it's easy for us naturally to to be like Moses or, or go, okay, well, what am I going to do? And I'm getting on and I'm not looking like Christ yet. How am I going to do the stuff that he's spoken to me about doing when actually if he says, you know, when you know me and you become like me, stuff will just turn up. You know, you will be doing the stuff if that's, you know, if you get what I mean. Um, because it's about knowing him first and then uh, works come as a result of knowing him. 
And so Moses needed to go through this process to come to the point where actually knowing God was the ultimate thing and, and that was what was, you know, his life was about. Before then, he was given responsibility to minister from, from that place, you know. Mm. But good question. Mm. Any other questions? Moses was obedient to that process, eh? And what came of it, for sure. Any other questions? Surely there's another question. So for the recording, uh, God was interested in someone because of relationship and not just what he could achieve for them, eh? Cool. All right, I think we've got time for one last question. Uh, Sorry, one last question uh, from the panel. So question number three, how did, God, uh, how did Moses' life change after he had gone through this process? So what was the difference between how he started and how he ended? How did Moses' life change after he had gone through this process? Um, one, of the, one of the key examples for me was at the beginning we read that Moses was a man educated in all of the ways of Egypt, mighty in word and deed. <laughs> And then when God appears to him in the bush, he says, I'm, how, how can I go and do this? I'm not eloquent. I'm not eloquent, the guy who is mighty in word and deed. And I just feel like God had done such a breaking work in him that he went from being actually really capable physically and naturally to going, after what it is that I've seen, I don't even have the capacity to speak, you know? And it, and it reminds me of what we heard this morning of Job, where Job goes, you know, he was a man who was even declared righteous and was doing all this stuff and was, if you will, eloquent. And then God turns up, speaks to him, and he goes, I had heard of you, and now I've seen you, and I despise myself as a result of that. And so here's a man who has an encounter, the work is done, and and he he really needs God's help even to turn up and speak and bring the message. And God's like, well, I've given you Aaron. Right, Aaron can do it. You know, he hasn't gone through the breaking process. <laughs> he can speak. <laughs> and I, excuse me. I feel like there's something in that as well about Moses. And I don't think it was just a cop-out to say, I can't speak, you know? Like I think, you know, Moses went from... from be- from seeing something that was happening right in front of him and actually genuinely thinking that he could bring deliverance for his people through his own actions, you know. But all of a sudden now he's come to the point where, you know, that God is saying, right, it's time, I'm going to use you and and speak through you to bring this deliverance, I think he actually has come to the point where he realises that his words can't achieve the ultimate end that God is trying to achieve, eh, yeah, you know? Yeah, and right. so, it, like, obviously there's on, there's on one side on a personal level where his own capacity to speak is limited, but I think as, as well as that, there's the, 
to, to me, I feel like, you know, how can through words you make someone poor in spirit? You know, so we're, we're, we're responsible here for this, having a discussion on a panel. But to me, this is why poverty of spirit is so massive. And I think what Moses went through is that, for example, for us as communicators, there's this, this work is so divine that only the Holy Spirit can work this in someone. How can, how can words being articulated out of someone's mouth create the divine, eternal life of God that lives forever? We're, we're completely incapable, eh, you know? And so Moses, I think, has, has transitioned eh, in every way to seeing the bigness of what God was wanting to achieve and having to put himself in, in the second place, knowing that God himself was going to have to do the work that he had promised. Eh? You know? so. Yeah, I mean, to me it's... So, you know, the old Moses did what was right in his own eyes. The, the new Moses lived in response to God. So it's not that he didn't do anything, but what he did, he did in complete response to God. And actually... He had to do some crazy stuff, if you think about it. So the, the plagues, for example, you know, another paradox. Why did, you know, Moses kills a guy that seems a bit weird, and then the Lord kills all the firstborns. So, <laughs> um, so it wasn't like it would have, I don't imagine that it all made sense to Moses. That's not the point of poverty and spirit. It's that he lived in response to God. So God said, do this thing. He said, I can't. And then he went and did as the Lord asked. And you see even in the scripture that we read out tonight, at the beginning it says that Moses saw the affliction of the people and he acted. And then at the end it says, God comes to him and it says, um, God saw the affliction of his people and sent Moses. You know, two two very different postures. eh? He saw with his physical eyes and he acted. And then in the second posture he heard what the Spirit was saying and he moved in response to, to what it was that God was doing, you know. I think how many of the 30,000 denominations wouldn't be there today if people didn't just see a need with their eyes and decided to act, but were prepared to actually hear what God was doing, receive from the Spirit, and, and actually engage in what it is that God is about here on the earth, you know. Um, I think we would have a very different landscape of, of the body of Christ, you know. And yet I think that this is what God is restoring, you know, um, is, is being able to actually hear, because faith comes from hearing, and from hearing we have prophetic sight and vision to then actually be in, involved and invested in what it is that God is actually doing and not just what we've seen with our own eyes, you know. And you see that. So when there's that point where they're heading on towards the promised land and God says, off you go, but I'm not coming. Yeah. By that point, Moses is like, well, why would we? <laughs> like, you know, even though that's the thing that God's promised them, he's like, well, if your presence is, isn't with us, who are we? Um, the, the little title over my notes tonight was um, from Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labour in vain. And I feel like one of the sort of standout points for me is that up until Moses was led into the wilderness and went through process, he was a man that had built his own house or himself. And then after he goes through a process, he is used by God as part of the house. And so he becomes the building of the Lord not his own building. And, you know, I guess if, if 
he was tied into an outcome, which I feel like was part of the process that he was free of outcome. You know, he was sent into Egypt to speak to Pharaoh to get the Israelites out and into the promised land. But realistically, he actually didn't get any of them into the promised land. So he, he kind of failed in half of his mission. And out of, let's say, a million people that he was leading through the wilderness, two of them made it into the promised land. That's it. They're, they are hideous results by any, any stretch of the imagination. You know? And so I go, but, but you never read about that at all. Like it's, it's never, or oh, Moses failed and did this bad thing and didn't succeed or whatever. He was faithful to what it was that he was asked to do and went with it. And there's no sense of failure there at all because he wasn't, he was an extension of God's hand and purpose. He wasn't doing his own work. The other thing I think that really stood out to me is we should never mistake this humility for timidity. So it's not this position of, I'll sit in the background quietly all the time if God's calling me into Pharaoh's house. Um, so, you know, old Moses ran away when Pharaoh was cross at him. New Moses fronted him how many times? Yeah, and I yeah, presume his life was on the line every time. And new Moses had this kind of amazing ability to be meat in the sandwich between <laughs> Israelites and God. And it's just like this priestly position where he can be the intermediary yes. and negotiate on the behalf of his people for God and behalf of God to these people. Yeah. And that's not something old Moses could have done. And I I just have a little giggle about the way God, um, he gets asked this question after he murders the Egyptian, and he says, who are you to be be judge and ruler over us? And then in Stephen, and Stephen's not a book, in Acts, Stephen describes him as sent to be the ruler and deliverer by God. (laughs) You know, like those questions are so settled in Moses by the end. He knows what he's about and who he's for. He can stand in that in that place between between God and, and us yeah. us as the naughty Israelites, or yeah. between you know that's Christ's position, yes. being the intermediary between a bunch of interesting people and holy God. And he kind of can he can be there because of the reality of what Christ has done in him. Thanks, <laughs> And I think that that is. <laughs> if I made it worse with my <laughs> Give him a round of applause here. Yeah, got there in the end. <laughs> and and I think to me that that is what true meekness is, eh? You know, is that he he wasn't shrinking back from what God had put on him. You know, like um, it, it wasn't. Oh, who made you to be a ruler and judge over us? Oh, sorry, yeah, not me. You know, he he actually he stepped into finally what it was that he was called into, eh? You know, and I think to me. You know, this poverty of spirit and this meekness, like we've heard, it's not about being a floppy fish. It's actually about knowing it's a a place of of real authority that you know that you are where you are by his grace and the divine work that he's done inside of you. And you know that you're placed in the environment that you're in, not for your own selfish gain, but actually to minister and administer Christ. And, And so you can say, yeah, I'm... I actually add value to you, you know, and and, and that's actually, you know like it's, it can sound like arrogance, but actually it's true humility, you know. We're all to be people who add value to one another, you know, to add value to the body. I, I, I say like it's to me. I'm like, I I know that I add value in my workplace, you know. Yeah, that's good. 
not because I'm, ca- I'm talented or capable, but just because of who I am, ministering and caring and supporting others, you know, and, and it's the same here. Um, so it's not a place of shrinking back, it's a place of stepping up and, ste- and stepping into, eh, you know. Any last questions before we uh, wrap it up for the evening? Yeah, yeah. Um, for the recording that he was, uh, Warren was just asking if God's in the process or the business of winning us over. Um, to me, absolutely. We, you know, we we know love because He first loved us, and while we were still sinners, He died for us. You know, He He didn't die for us because we were awesome and deserved it. He showed His love, and that while we hated Him, He died for us. You know, so I feel like He's always in the process, and it's His goodness that leads us to repentance, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And I think that's what you're sharing before, Chris, about you know the description Hosea, where it says that God led um, her out into the wilderness and spoke tenderly yeah, to her. You right. know, and I think to me this is what we're looking at this evening in the life of Moses and and God, whose hand is on this man, leading him out and being so committed and devoted to doing this work in this man yeah. that he was prepared to align things and shape things for the sake of. Um, for this this man Moses, same eh? and the people, Israelite people, same. So. Probably just the last thought from me is um, I just love what you touched on there, Sam, about meekness. You know, and for me, meekness sounds so much like weakness, right? You naturally just go, oh, meekness means weakness, but it's it really isn't. You know, because when you look at Christ, who was meek, he was. I I think to me, meekness is strength restrained rather than weakness at all. You know, and I have this picture of a horse that's bridled and harnessed into a chariot or a cart and it's strong and capable but it's restrained it's not running off it's not doing its own thing and I see that in Moses that he went from his own strength which was unrestrained obviously because he had his own mind engaged to being filled with the strength which God supplied and only operating as he was led to be to be used you know not under his own ideas and reconnaissance. Cool. All right. Well, that's us for the evening. Um, Joe, you happy to, to pray for us? And then we'll. Um, Father, I thank you that you are so for us, that your plans for us are so good, and that you have stopped at nothing to make a way for us. Thank you that you're more than capable of doing what we are completely incapable of doing. Father, I just, I ask that we would position ourselves with our ears inclined towards you. As Noel so beautifully demonstrated, 
on our knees, just being with you, Lord, positioned for you to do the miraculous in our lives. In Jesus' name.